whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. Could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Sure. Thanks so much, Kieran. I'm Nancy Bauer. I am a professor of philosophy at Tufts University, where I also serve as dean of Tufts' newest school, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts. I got my PhD from Harvard. I wrote my dissertation on Simone de Beauvoir, and she is still my philosophical hero and North Star. I have written a lot about pornography and also about what it is to do feminist philosophy and also about philosophical method and in particular my concern that contemporary philosophy is uh, not grounded enough. So I'm a kind of ornery philosopher who tends to be fairly combative in my work. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question that might lead into the ornery combativeness or not. This is a an Iris Murdoch-inspired question. She begins every podcast telling us that philosophy is certainly not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? There's no question that it I, I think it I think it determines almost my philosophical work in lots of ways. I have I'm a weird combination of anxious and down to earth. So I do a lot of worrying, but I also really care about the rubber hitting the road. I started out my career as a journalist and I have a journalist sensibility of wanting to um, figure out what's going on in a way that will be useful to people right now. I hate bullshit. Um, as an administrator, I have spent a lot of time just writing down all of the business speak that academic administrators use in order not to actually talk about the real on the ground issues that we need to be talking about. So people will say things like we need to leverage our resources to promote transformational experiences for our students, which I think is an utterly hollow ambition. I don't even think it's a coherent ambition. And I also, in my most recent work um, in philosophy, am critical of ways of thinking about language that do not realize the extent to which the particular words we use determine our ontology. I really believe that that's the case, that the, the vocabulary available to people determines what they can say and do. And right now, I think the vocabulary that a lot of people are using in business that has extended to like ordinary people is very toxic and problematic and incoherent. So, so yeah. And so I kind of also would say that I have a certain ordinary temperament. <laughs> but at the same time, the last thing I would say to complicate it a little bit more is that I really lead 
uh, I try really hard to lead with compassion. I care a lot about individual people suffering. I think this is actually because I had a mother who was very unhappy um, when I was a child. So I had to get very good at figuring out what her moods were. She was very kind, but just sort of depressed. And I felt like it was my job to kind of make sure that I wasn't contributing to that and maybe was taking away from it. And I think that's sort of how I approach other people. I kind of turned that into a sort of moral uh, guidepost for myself. What was her attitude to your decision to do philosophy, or I guess to move from journalism into philosophy? Was she supportive or, or uncertain about it? Oh, they, my parents were very supportive, and they weren't surprised. They were sort of surprised that I had become a journalist, though I had been doing that for a long time. I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I was the managing editor of the Harvard Crimson, and I started working immediately for the Boston Globe. In fact, I was working for the Globe even before I graduated from Harvard, and I thought that I would be a journalist forever. And I, for many complicated reasons, started to feel very bad about the field. And through many, many stumblings, I just sort of found my way uh, starting a, a PhD program at Harvard when I was 28 years old, having done a whole bunch of other things. But somehow or other, I, I, I just was very attracted to, to what philosophers did and the amount of time they took to think through things that we don't have the luxury to do in everyday life in most circumstances. And I still feel that way, that it's an incredible luxury to be able to think about philosophy for a living. Me too. Yeah. I'm going to change gears here and ask you a question out of left field. So this is question two. Do you have dreams about philosophy? No, never. All the dreams I have... <laughs> Um, I don't usually remember my dreams. When I have nightmares, they are always, always about, and I have these a lot, about finding out that I forgot to do something important that I was supposed to do, thereby somehow causing something terrible to happen. And that is a kind of signature expression of my personality, which is and, and again, this may have something to do with my my mother's being sad and my money wanting so much to make her not so sad. And she wasn't overtly sad. I could just tell I was really in tune with her undercurrent of being a 1960s and 70s housewife who was really smart and basically had to bake cookies and clean the floor all day in uh, suburban white America. So yeah, um, my nightmares are about not having done something that I was supposed to do, and thereby letting a lot of people down. And I have them with incredible regularity. I can imagine being an, an academic administrator conjures many opportunities for that kind of anxiety. Yeah. Now what I do is I wake up in the middle of the night and I think, oh, I told this person I would you know, s send in the last sentence they needed in order to get their grant in on time. And it was due at 5 p.m. last night and I didn't do it. And now I have to just lie here awake for two hours. So that's kind of how my, my nights go. Okay, back back to something more positive than anxiety dreams. This is more wish fulfillment. So if you could have dinner with any philosopher, living or dead, who would it be? That's a really easy question for me. It would be Simone de Beauvoir. I'd read a little bit of her work in college, not very much, just like in a survey course, read 25 pages or something and went, uh-huh. But then... When I went to grad school, it took me a really long time, like three years to figure out 
what I was interested in when I started my PhD program. And in that third year of, I I guess it was the beginning of my fourth year of grad school, I had a baby, which was not a common thing to do then. I was actually told by one of the Harvard professors that it was such a shame that I was dropping out of the program. (laughs) And I said, I didn't realize I was dropping out of the program. But I had a child who absolutely never slept at night and still to this day is fair, has a lot of trouble sleeping at night. And she's now 28, almost 29 years old. Anyway, so I would just walk her around and like, you know, a baby holder in front of me all through the night, um, usually. And because I would be bored doing that, I would have a flashlight and I would read things. And I had taken a course that up until she was born on October 30th of 1991 with Eileen O'Neill, an absolutely wonderful historian of philosophy who pioneered work in the history of women philosophers. And so I thought I should be, I want to keep reading from that course because I was so interested. I was amazed and astonished by, by the things that I was reading And Eileen had mentioned Simone de Beauvoir en passant. And one night I was walking by my bookshelf and I had my college edition of The Second Sex. So I took that out and started reading it. And I had a conversion experience almost immediately. I was like, where has this book been? Why did I not get it before? And so, so yeah, ever since that is what put me on my path. I think my nobody at Harvard's philosophy department did anything resembling feminism, almost nobody except Eileen who had visited. Nobody was seriously interested in existentialism. Fred Neuhauser was there at the time and he was somewhat interested and was unbelievably helpful to me in my work. But Stanley Cavell and Hilary Putnam both said, sure, go ahead. But I I had other professors say to me, it's such a shame that you just want to write a dissertation and then leave uh, the profession. And I would be like, I'm not going to leave the profession there. Like, well, dear, nobody is going to hire somebody who works at Simone de Beauvoir who went to Harvard. But I, I knew that there was something really important to say about her. And, and I wrote a good dissertation and it was published almost immediately as a book and it's still in print. And that was 20 years ago or so. So, yeah. And I always wish that I could have met her. So yeah, she's the person for me. Well, there's lots of follow-ups I would like to ask. One is, what did happen then? So you applied for jobs coming out of Harvard in this eccentric, sort of unrecognizable mold of working on existentialism and feminism and Beauvoir. And yeah, what next? Right. And also, you need to understand that except for Fred Neuhauser, whom I don't want to, it was wonderful, absolutely nobody worked on existentialism or phenomenology. So I basically just bootstrapped the whole way. So I had no idea if I was even getting it right. I mean, I was reading secondary sources. It was kind of crazy. But what happened is I went on the job market, I think four years in a row, but not in the way that you think I'm about to say, because every single year I got a job, at least one job. And in many years, I got more than one job. But my marriage was breaking up. And I was afraid I'd get these jobs and then my then spouse would be like, I don't know, do we really want to move to, I can't remember where some of them were. Um, Or I would go there and I would think, yeah, this is someplace I'd live, but I just don't, I just don't feel right. doesn't feel right. And my advisors were beside themselves. They were furious with me because, you know, I was getting these jobs. And then finally, um, the fourth year I went on the market, I had three job offers. One was at Vanderbilt, one was at UC Irvine, and one was at Tufts. 
And then, you know, it was really clear that my marriage was, that marriage was going to end. And I thought, well, I don't want to take my kids away from their dad. So I took the job at Tufts and I have been there ever since. And the people, what people were angry about was even back then the job market was tight. And I think the reason I did well in the job market is because I was writing on this strange topic, but I could talk about Beauvoir in a way that anybody could understand, even someone off the street. And people, I knew how to give a job talk. I was a little bit older than other grad students. I had had sort of more experience in the real world, and I wasn't afraid. I just thought to myself, well, if I don't get a job, I'll just be a journalist. And I try to encourage students now that I work with on PhD dissertations to just not be afraid. Just believe in the thing that you're doing and only write about things that you really, really care about, even if they're out of off the beaten path. And I, I, some people think that's irresponsible advice, but I really, really believe it. There's another aspect of the question that I also want to follow up on that's less about your academic career and more about dinner, which is... <laughs> Would, would she be a good person to have dinner with? And was she a good conversationalist? What kind of, what would the experience actually be like? I actually think that I would probably be devastated and really disappointed because she could be, I know from having read zillions of things about her, she could be very sharp tongued and she may or may not have wanted to talk about philosophy. She would routinely deny that she was a philosopher, although she would also routinely affirm that she was a philosopher, especially if somebody said that she wasn't. And she had the kind of courage and sense of uh, deserving her own little place on the earth. That is something that I seem to project as a person People always think I'm self-confident because I talk a lot and I'm not afraid to say what I think. But I think uh, she actually had this sort of very simple sense of deserving a say that I find unbelievably attractive and admirable. And she wasn't afraid to make a mistake and she wasn't afraid to say something that people would ridicule and find crazy. And all of these characteristics I, I really, really admire. I have to say, um, one of my advisors, as I mentioned, was Hillary Putnam. And of course, Hillary is a, a toweringly important philosopher in the Anglo-American tradition and was a wonderful advisor. But the thing that, but people started to talk towards the last couple of decades of his life about how he had lost his way. He had done all this extremely important work in analytic philosophy. And now he's talking about Levinas, like what, how did that happen? But I admired that characteristic of Hillary totally. I thought the fact that he took an interest in his own interests, and and here I'm going to reference my other advisor, Stanley Cavell, and, and like um, Emerson, as Cavell was fond of pointing out, Hillary, in my opinion, just believed that what was the most true in his own heart was true for others as well. Like, just thought, if I'm interested in this, other people will be interested in it too. And let, let's see if my words find an audience. And both Cavell and Putnam proceeded that way. And I found that an enormously admirable way to do philosophy. So I was turned off from the kind of, if I can parody it, the kind of analytic philosophy in which, you know, you you focus on a problem, ordinarily one that's either the same as or a variation on something that a lot of people are working on, and you try to find 
a way forward with that problem. Um, my own husband, Mark Richard, uh, works that way. I love him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I think there should be room in the world for this other way, which I find very attractive, which is to see who your readers are and to see whether or not your your writing can spur their interest in looking at something in a in a way that takes it out of its of the everyday and and really allows you to think and dwell on it and i like that a lot and so yeah i'm sure i'm very far away but uh, i saw in simone de beauvoir a sort of way to combine this capacity for being wrong with a conviction that the thing that she was writing about was super important, even though everybody else didn't think it was. And I've taken a lot of inspiration from that. I suppose there is actually a kind of transition naturally from the topic we're on, which is philosophers and ways of doing philosophy that inspire you to question four, which is about omissions. So what's the most important work of philosophy you've never read? Oh, I, I guess everybody does this and is, you know, is willing to be deeply embarrassed. I have read parts of, but have not by any stretch of the imagination, read the whole of Hume's treatise. And the thing is, it is always at the top of my list. I mean, I keep lists. I now keep them elect electronically. I used to just keep them physically. And I literally have written Hume's treatise at the top of this list, and it always falls to the bottom. I've read parts of it, like I said. I feel like the reason this happens is that there's some kind of God who wants to remind me of what a loser I am. And it's funny, because I really want to read it, but I just, <laughs> I never get there. And it's super embarrassing. So there you go. Well, book two of the treatise is definitely a slog. I mean, the elaborate psychology of the passions is hard going. That's for sure. But do you, if you had to predict whether you will read it, do you think, no, I'll, I'll, it'll keep be a, being at the top of the list and then sliding down and that will go on indefinitely? Or do you think, do you foresee a time when you will actually get to it? So I think I think both of those things, depending on what mood I'm in. I, I guess my I cleave to the notion that I will read it. That is, though, part and parcel of the fantasies I have about what's going to happen when I'm no longer a dean. I've been a dean since 2012, so I'm finishing my eighth year right now. And it's a long, complicated story because I thought I was going to do three years and write my third book, which is going to be on, and I, I am writing it on what's wrong with higher education, about which I have a lot to say. And in fact, I took the job of being a dean in order to have an inside picture of why everything is messed up. And that was very helpful. <laughs> um, and the most important thing, by the way, that I learned is the people in higher ed that everybody hates, like all the deans and all the administrators, they are all really good people trying extremely hard to do the right thing. But what's a problem, I think, is the structure of higher ed. So when I'm done being dean, which I keep hoping will be tomorrow morning, and for various reasons, I can go into them if you want, it's not, I will, I, what my, my fantasy is that I will finish this book, and then I will just spend two years doing nothing but reading. And of course, the first thing on my list to read is Hume's treatise. So I'm going to say yes, but also no. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. So 
we're almost out of time. So I'm going to take us to question five, which we might have anticipated or maybe not. I'm not sure. This is another Iris Murdoch question beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? I'm going to answer that question in a second, but I also realize I haven't yet said that I love Iris Murdoch, and I'm so glad that her questions are framing this interview. I just think she's just marvelous. I tend to like literary writers who also write philosophy, so that's there's Beauvoir too. So just to say that. Oh, I, I, this was the question. This is the question that is the easiest for me, (laughs) sir, because I am terrified of being buried alive literally and metaphorically and this goes with my you know waking up in the middle of the night and being buried by the promises i made to people that i failed to fulfill whether it's that i forgot to you know send them a two word email or i forgot to give them the book manuscript that was due 6 weeks ago i think my neurosis uh, knows no bounds i'm a real worrier and the idea of just being stuck somewhere for eternity with just my neurotic brain is I'm, I'm very proud of myself for having the courage to even say that out loud. Let's put it that way. So that's my biggest fear. Well, thank you for sharing that and for your fascinating answers to the other questions I've asked you. It's been really, really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Karen. It was a blast. I really appreciate your asking me. That was Nancy Bao. She's professor of philosophy at Tufts University and the author of among other books, How to Do Things with Pornography. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. 